Hey, everybody, it's Pete. You doing okay? I only ask because, you know, we're in the middle of quite a spell right now, and it's important that we take care of ourselves and each other, and you're all pretty great for showing up, and we appreciate you, I guess. So we hope that you're all right today and that the weight of the universe is light upon your shoulders. I had a rough weekend myself, if you don't mind me saying. Have I told you about the COVID? Well, we had uh, our visit, COVID and me, back in July, and the recovery process is long. So this weekend, I find myself staring square in the face of my old friend Anxiety and his pal Panic in relation to my weird old vascular system, and, well, things fall apart. We've all been there, right? Okay. So as I clawed my way back to daylight, I found myself running through some new language, like like a script that I've heard but never read. There were words of navigation more than bland, you know, encouraging self-talk. And the more I repeated them, the more control I found. Well, here's the big reveal. I didn't see it coming, but it, somehow in my exhausted days, I had managed to internalize the words of this week's guest. Her name is Carlene Britton, and she's a clinical social worker in Nashville. She's here to teach us about Gestalt therapy. And get ready, because Carlene is a superb educator and gives us a clear description of Gestalt practice, how it differs from other interventions, and then caps it off with an exercise that starts as an angry conversation with what might as well be the robot in my phone and ends with a gift of self-talk, the likes of which... I've never quite experienced. That's right. She does her exercise with me. Our great thanks to Carlene for her time to sit down with Dodge and educate us all. And thanks to you, as always, for your commitment to the work. And now, Dodge Ray and Carlene Britton. Welcome, Carlene. I'm really glad to have you here today. Thanks, Dodge. I appreciate the opportunity. Nice to see your face, too. I haven't seen you in ages. I don't it think. has been a long time. It has been a long time in this crazy world of the COVID, um, adding to it that much more. But we're both very busy people, so I haven't gotten to see you even at NPI or something like that. Yeah, it's been crazy for a year or so. It has been, for sure. Well, I really am glad to have you. I've been excited to talk about this topic. I came up with the idea for this um, podcast before I went searching around on the internet to see what there might be to add to the things I was already excited to talk with guests about and ran into the paradoxical theory of change, which uh, did sound like it might be appropriate for the podcast, right? And the more I looked into it and realized that it was a big part of Gestalt, I started getting excited because I thought this is an excuse to call up Carlene Britton and see if we could have a talk about Gestalt therapy and she could teach me about this, this wonderful theory. Um, so tell us, let's, let's start out. So you practice as a Gestalt psychotherapist here in Nashville, and I'd love to hear just right. a little bit more about that. You're also a member of the associate faculty at the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland, so you're, it's a real treat to have you on. But give us a little sense of what is Gestalt psychotherapy itself, so we have some context for this, this theory that has arisen from that 
that place. Uh, I always sort of chuckle when somebody asks me what is Gestalt therapy because <laughs> it's really hard to define. Um, and uh, it's you know it's an experiential approach. So to put it in the word into words can be really tricky and and difficult. And I have a a friend and a colleague from the institute. And he's also, I think, an associate faculty now in one of the programs. And um, when we were talking about how to describe Gestalt therapy, he said, you got to go to know. And that, that really fit for me because to really understand it, you know, it has to be experienced. It, to really get it inside, it has to be experienced. But for these purposes, I'll try my best in words to give you a definition. So Gestalt therapy, most people maybe know that it was um, developed in the 1940s with Fritz Perls and his wife, Laura Perls, and also Paul Goodman. As I said, it's an experiential therapy, but it's also a process-oriented therapy. And uh, in other words, we're more interested in how a person experiences, processes their experiences, rather than what the content of the experience is. It's about people learning uh, how they get stuck in their process, uh, processing experiences and emotions in their life, and it helps them learn to get unstuck. So what's cool about that is it's a transferable skill. You know, our, our goal is to really just teach our clients the awareness process, their own awareness process. And once they know that, they can take that to any situation or circumstance in their life. A mentor once said to me at the Institute, um, the story a person is telling is, of course, important. But what's more important is who this person is as she tells her story. So we'll listen, we'll pay attention to, um, is she breathing? Um, Is she speaking in a whisper? Or is he changing subjects, holding back tears maybe, or seems to be holding back aggression? You know, we might see a fist, for instance, made. The goal of the, this focus on process is for the client to improve how they make contact in the world. In other words, to help them learn to take action to meet their own needs in a good enough way. And we do that as therapists with aware, spontaneous, and authentic dialogue between the client and the therapist. So we pay attention to what they seem to be experiencing and report the data of that, but we also pay attention to what we're experiencing in the moment and report that as well, if it's in service of the client's work, of course. Can I jump in for a minute to see if I understand? So I can think of a recent time talking with a client where she was talking about her shame as a fixed concept. And I asked her to stop and consider that um, that what was more important was to notice how she was shaming her, herself. And I wonder if that's kind of an example of what you're talking about. Like if, if we got, we started to get into the, instead of it as a noun, it became just a verb and she could watch it happen. Um, and I, so we got to talk about sort of what, what's happening as you're participating in that process. Is this an example of it or is it a little different from that? Yeah, it's kind of like that. So I I might instead say something about like, so as you say that, what do you notice in your body? Or here's what I notice when you say that. Yes. Okay. I instinctively do that a lot. So that makes a lot of sense. I'm sure you do. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. I have an example of um, an old faculty member at the Institute who told a story about sitting with a, um, a young man who was telling a story of horrific childhood abuse. And he was telling it like he was reporting the weather on the five o'clock news. You know, so it was just very flat and very matter of fact. And she started to tear up. And she allowed herself to cheer up. And at one point he said to her, why are you crying? And she said, well, somebody has to. So, so she used her own experience to model for him. It was her authentic experience. She wasn't making it up. She wasn't pretending. Her own experience of emotion and tears to model for him that, oh, maybe there's something missing in his experience. Maybe it's okay to have strong uh, emotions about that and even tears about that. So the idea is that um, the awareness is not just the goal of Gestalt therapy, it's also the methodology that we use. Awareness, awareness, awareness. Mm -hmm. And we believe that the more awareness a person has, the more choice they have in life. And that a lack of awareness results in limited choice. So, for instance, I had, coming out of my family experience, I had absolutely no awareness of being angry because we didn't do conflict openly in my family. It was very tense, oftentimes in the house, but nobody ever admitted to fighting about anything. Even, I have three siblings, so there were four of us. I don't remember even having a fight with my siblings over silly things that all siblings fight over, you know, none at all. So my anger was totally repressed. And what happened, because I didn't have awareness of it, of good, healthy anger, I allowed myself to be walked on, to be uh, abused in a way by people. My first reaction to somebody doing something, you know, offensive to me was, oh, what did I do wrong? Because I had no awareness of the wait a minute, <laughs> you can't do that to me. That's not okay, yeah. That's not okay, yeah. So the more I became aware of my anger and could express it in a, in a healthy way, in an assertive way, the more choice I had about how to react to somebody who was doing something offensive, crossing a boundary. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can just imagine myriad examples of, of how our experience changes when we're aware I'll bet you anybody out there listening right now, if they were to pause and and just notice where is my breath right now, they would notice it begins to change. Ah, thank you for the reminder. <laughs> <laughs> right? Right? Yeah. And as it begins to change, so does everything else. Exactly. So that's kind of Gestalt in a nutshell. I, I liked your point that awareness isn't just the goal, it is the methodology. It is the intervention. Mm -hmm. Exactly. That as we bring them to their awareness and ourselves to our own, that change is is automatic. It's 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 released as much it's as it is. Yeah, it's organic. Yeah. It's mm -hmm. it's finally allowed yeah, exactly. in a way that the lack mm -hmm. of awareness had frozen in place something. I know a lot of people because I do um Al Anon meetings, a lot of people who are um caretakers and people pleasers. And they have no awareness at all that there's a choice to be different than that. Al-Anon teaches them they can be different than that. But because of whatever messages they 
and experiences they had as a child, they think they have to be nice all the time and people-pleasing and not set boundaries and take care of others, put others before themselves. Not a clear choice. So there are multiple kind of major components within Gestalt. I mean, I know there, there are sort of significant kind of pillar theories that go along with with the paradoxical theory of change as another of the main pillars. Is, are these helpful to understand too? You know, it would really, I think, help people get a better picture and sense of what Gestalt is like if I mentioned a few of those theories. I had a feeling. I can be brief about that. And I think it'll really help flesh it out for people. Okay. Yeah, let's let's hear. So what I'll cover is, um, and, and again, briefly, is field theory and phenomenology and the philosophy of dialogue. And then, of course, we'll talk about the paradoxical theory of change because that's why we're here. Okay. So field theory is simply just the belief that everything is dependent on context. We're all parts of a field, and everything in the field is interconnected and influenced and influences one another. So the concept of no man is an island, you know, we are influenced by our surroundings and our circumstances. There's no getting around it. So we believe that behavior is determined by the totality of a person's situation rather than just internal drives. So that's what we, we pay a lot of attention to what their ground is. What did they, as they sit in, in my office this day, what have they brought in terms of their historical experience? Okay. What's their ground? And so since we understand all behavior in relation to context, what I love about Gestalt is it's really less about pathology and more about how have we creatively adjusted to life circumstances. A lot of the self-help literature talks today about survival behaviors, kind of what we're talking about when we talk about creative adjustments. What did we had have to do to belong in the family or culture or church that we belong to? How did we have to adjust our behavior in ourselves? And so what I find is, uh, because of this belief in field theory, Gestalt is very respectful, and it's a very non-shaming model. I think things that pathologize can be shaming to people. And because I come from a lot of toxic shame, which I'll talk about, uh, I'm real sensitive to that. And I think that's one of the reasons I was attracted to this model. I have a feeling even that gently nudges into that, the the paradox that I notice the more with clients, I can help normalize and validate, even celebrate what a creative solution this, what they're calling a problem once was, the more free they are to change it. Exactly. Exactly. The more I can say, wow, I bet this saved your life once upon a time, even if yep. it's killing them now. There's something about yep. it. You can just watch how they sit up a little differently in the chair. And I don't say that as a technique. I absolutely mean it. Yeah. It's completely yeah. true. But there's, it's always fascinating to me how much that gives us freedom then to say this was once helpful and it's okay to put it down now. Yeah. So you're honoring the whole of who they are, yeah. even the parts that they'd like to change. Right. I came out of my childhood with an awful lot of toxic shame from my family, from my church, probably from being female growing up in the 50s and 60s, for God's sure. sake, you know. All of the above. And, um, yeah, all of the above. And so I had a really strong belief that I was inherently not okay, just not okay. And I thought that's not something that I can't change. 
I'm stuck with it and I'm walking around believing I'm not okay. Um, and that was a very painful way to live. Um, it was like set in stone for me. And um, this idea of field theory, that everything was dependent on context, really helped me to accept that this sense of shame that I was carrying around wasn't inherent. There was a chance that I could change it. And that gave me so much hope that maybe this could be different. Maybe I could feel better about myself. If I'm so ashamed, I'm going to be ashamed of that shame. And I'm not going to admit it to anybody. And then it's never going to change. And I am stuck with it. Right. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I can see how these all start going together, right? I mean, that if it, mm-hmm. it, it's not happening to you, if it can be honored as something you once needed, I mean, shaming yourself was part of how you adapted to where you were. I mean, you were being shamed, but in some ways you took that on, you know, to be part of that universe at that time. Exactly. And then later realize, oh, I've been participating in this, which means I can stop. Exactly. It was useful for a time. There's nothing wrong with me that I felt this way, but I can now stop doing this to myself. And you cannot stop doing that to yourself. We were shamed in relationship, so we have to heal in relationship. So until you can sit with somebody, admit that about yourself, and still be loved by that person, yes, you can't change it. There's no hope in it. There's no healing in it. It's not just an internal shift. No, you have to have a do-over. I think that's why groups are so powerful. I agree. Okay, keep going. So that one makes a lot of sense. Okay. So the next one I want to talk about is phenomenology, which mm-hmm. is a big word that simply means the study of consciousness as experienced from the first-person point of view. So how is it you think about this, or how do you experience this? And in quantum physics, they talk about uh, nothing that is observed is unaffected by the observer. So how we're perceiving things is co-created, what it is out there and how we're seeing it, right? Yeah. The, The idea is that you can't be free of the lens of your own subjectivity. Okay. You simply can't be. And so we honor that subjectivity. Got it. We're curious about that subjectivity. What's your experience of this? I have some examples for you. First, I want to say, um, so if you can picture, if you're listening and you can picture a tree limb, right? So there's this long tree limb and picture kind of close to the trunk of the tree is a little bird perched on the tree limb. And then a little further down the limb is a bat hanging from the from the limb. And the, the bird says to the bat, our experiences are very different, but that doesn't mean you're lying about your experience. <laughs> That's phenomenology. And I was reminded of this when I listened to your podcast with your brother. Mm-hmm. And the two of you talked about your, your move to Nebraska, I think it was. Uh-huh. What what you both acknowledged and what I noticed, too, is that you had vastly different experiences of that move, right? Do I remember that so. correctly? Yes. Yeah. But you both, neither of you negated the other's experience. It was just lovely. Mm. That's phenomenology. That makes so much sense. I can see how that then also takes the therapist out of a role of being this 
uh, a healer, teacher, person who's supposed to be telling them either what's wrong with them or what they have been experiencing or what they should be experiencing or where they ought to be instead of this. It, it's just, it's very much a, a then in seeing th- a client that way, is seeing life that way, you can join with them much more. Exactly. I, I think I get this um, image in my mind of rather than sitting across from your client, you're sitting next to your client. Yeah. Not that not that that's what I'm really doing, but it's that that sense of being next to, being good company to somebody rather than trying to heal or fix. Right. And joining them and looking out the window they're looking through instead of the one mm-hmm. you've been looking through. Yeah. Mhm. But also holding on to your your perceptions as well because your perceptions may help the client become more aware of something they're missing. So important to hold on to that. Does that make sense? It does. And it may, it sounds like it would, it would help them become aware of something they're missing, not just about the overall, let's say, situation, but maybe even something they're missing in their own experience. Like the woman I was talking about who sat with her client reporting his trauma in a really flat way, and she tears up and says, somebody in the room has to cry. Right. <laughs> he was missing that. Right. She was crying the tears he couldn't yet. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So that's why your own experience is so important to hold on to and to offer when appropriate. That makes sense to me too. Okay. So phenomenology. Okay. A couple more things I want to say about it. So what we value and what we pay attention to in gestalt therapy is a person's own unique perception of their experience. We don't assume that our view is more valid or true than theirs. It's another way that I think it's a very respectful approach. I think I got the idea or heard about this book first from you, actually, many years ago. May have been when you did an MPI talk, Grace Unfolding. Yes. Did you introduce that book to me? Oh, yeah. It's my favorite book about therapy. And in that, Ron Kurt says, it does not matter how much a therapist knows as long as he can keep it to himself and let the client discover what's true for himself. Yes. That's our, that's our approach. So it's uh, this attitude of not knowing and wanting to know at the same time. Okay. Very helpful. Um, do you remember Lou Casolino? He's a psychologist who came and did a workshop years ago at MPI. Yes. I've, for some reason, never forgotten. And maybe because it fits what, what I believe in about therapy. But he talks about, he sits with his clients with the attitude of, I don't know shit from Shinola. yes ted glantz was just telling us in our last episode also that one of his favorite quotes is is that he enters each hour without memory and without destination that's exactly what we try to do yeah that's what we value it's great so rather than offering interpretations of our own things we've thought up in our head and sometimes they're true and and uh, right on, but we don't offer those. We simply pay attention to what we notice in the client and in ourselves, and that's what we offer. So again, their movements, gestures. I might say, "Oh, as you say that, what I notice is my chest is tightening up." So we pay attention to those things. One of the tragedies of my own childhood was that I often had trouble trusting my own experience. So I would all. Often think I was crazy. I mean, not crazy in a, you know, mental health. I need to go to the hospital way, but just that my perceptions were off. And 
that's because I came from a family where we didn't talk about anything real. We didn't have conflict. We didn't feel. And so sitting with a client, with a therapist who valued my perception of reality was so powerful because I began to learn to trust myself through that. One of the most powerful interventions I remember receiving as a student, we do a personal growth group each weekend in the training program at the Institute. And I remember sitting in group and uh, the facilitator said to me, I was working on something and she said to me, could you just stay with that a little bit longer? That was the intervention. That's all it was. Just stay with that a little bit longer. And I did with her support. And this whole big piece of work came out of that. And so she she was really helping me to pay attention to what was my experience. What were my sensations in my body that could inform me about my feelings, my needs, my boundaries, things that I may have not been aware of in the past. Beautiful. Yeah. So that was Martin Buber. He wrote a book uh, called uh, I Thou. And the philosophy of dialogue simply means that we strive to be present with the client as a real human being and make our presence known by authentically describing the data of our own experience as in some of the examples I've given. So this approach is authentic. It's horizontal. We try to stay um, horizontal and not one up with the client. So we don't sit in a throne <laughs> as they come in to get our help. <laughs> and it's, we try to be spontaneous in our interaction. And as you said, that Ted Klontz talked about devoid of any agenda for outcome. How did he say it again? Without memory and without destination. Without destination. Yeah, I like how he put that. That's great. Um, so we just simply sit uh, with curiosity about the other person's experience as they tell their story in the here and now and reject the role of changer or expert or helper. Yeah. Just another human being. It's this relational attitude of dialogue that's really considered the heart of Gestalt therapy. So I'm thinking about this. I'm kind of listening um, through my ears as a therapist. And I know many of our listeners out there are themselves therapists and coaches and change agents and those sorts of things, but also through the ears of those who are listening for their own process. And I'm wondering if, if all three of these principles you've just named might be ideals um, or ways to, to consider interacting with oneself. Uh, definitely. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a way to change how you relate to yourself. Yeah. I mean, I have always shamed myself, for instance, for my shame. I've, my biggest place where I'm stuck is that I, I judge my feelings. So I'll feel I have been devastated by the nature of our situation in our nation right now, both politics and COVID. And I have real strong feelings about that. And then I think, well, why, why am I crying every day? And literally, I'm crying every day about it all. And my tendency is to judge that. So I think that these, um, these theories will all help us to be less judgmental, more compassionate with ourselves. Yeah. If you're 
more respectful, if any of us is more respectful about the field in which we live, right? The, I mean, that we, we believe ourselves that we are having a full experience and that we really are part of a, a larger system, a cultural system, a family system, the one we grew up in, the one we've chosen and so on. And we can honor that we are having a full experience and try to stay closer to that. And then can even internally interact with the part of us that's having that very strong experience in a much more equal way instead of a bossing way. It, I'm guessing all of these change our experience. So like if I'm, if I find I'm really sad, it's tempting for me sometimes to be like, oh God, why do I need to be sad today? I have a lot to do. Come on. Exactly. Instead of pausing to say, mm -hmm. judge it. I'm probably not. I mean, I say this to clients all the time and rarely say it to myself. You know, you're not crazy and you're not dumb. If you're feeling sad, there's probably a reason. Maybe about the present, might be about the past. But what if we just stayed with sad? So on a better day, maybe I'd stay with sad. Uh, and I would notice, how am I feeling sad? Can I breathe into sad? Where is that in my body right now? And instead of interacting with it like, oh, for God's sake, can the sadness go away? I'm sick of it. Maybe I'd stay with it in a more caring way. Or if you can't stay with it because the kids are going crazy and you got to tend to them or whatever, to at least bracket that with compassion and say, oh, I'm noticing this and I, you know, I'm sure it's important and I'll get back to it because you can't always stay with it. Yeah. Okay. Just wanted to name that for everyone out there listening sort of through non-clinical ears. Like what, what does that look like in, inside themselves? Or maybe even as, you know, as as parents or friends or whatever, how do we sit with somebody differently? And these these principles are not just principles for a clinician, they're principles for just really healthy, intimate relationship. Yeah, I think all of these principles really um, reflect a reverence for human experience. And if we could apply that to ourselves and to the our loved ones, the people closest to us, it could really change things. Yeah for our relationships, for ourselves. So does this take us in then to this paradoxical theory of change? Yes. So let's start with paradoxical theory of change. So it was developed in uh, first in 1970 by a man named Arnold Beiser. And I'd like to give you a little background about him. Okay. Because I think that's important too, to how he came up with this idea. He became a friend and colleague of Fritz Perls. And I think Fritz saw his paradoxical theory of change as really reflecting all of these ways that the Gestalt therapy approaches change and, and was excited about it and took it on as a part of Gestalt therapy. They did a lot of teaching and um, training together at Esalen. Hmm. But let me tell you about Arnold Beiser. I just watched a documentary, which is if you want to pay $15, it's worth watching. It's a very touching film about his life called Flying Without Wings. And he was 25 years old at the time. Uh, and he was a Stanford graduate. He was an aspiring surgeon. And he was a national tennis champ. So he's very athletic, very competitive. And he was struck with polio. Mm. And for younger people who don't know about polio, that was the pandemic in the early 1950s, late 40s. And uh, it's, it could strike people with paralysis. And he uh, became quadriplegic as a result. And the thing that really gets to me considering the pandemic we're going through now is he was struck down three weeks before the 
polio vaccine came available. Ugh. Yeah, that gives me chills considering what we're all going through. Yeah. So he spent two or three years, I think almost three years, in an iron lung. And again, some people might not know what that is, but it's a metal tube that a person has to lay flat on their back in and their body is paralyzed. They can't do anything, including breathing for themselves, but they can think. So imagine the torture of that. You know, I'm sure they could read, they could have visitors, but not much else, listen to music. So naturally, as you can imagine, he became really depressed. He expressed the desire to die at times. But eventually um, he got out of the iron lung and he went to rehab and started physical therapy and eventually married his his physical therapist and uh, they had a, a lovely life together despite his very severe disability he remained quadriplegic his whole life because he couldn't be a surgeon that wasn't possible anymore he decided to study psychiatry so that became his profession and how he ended up meeting fritz pearls for instance so his theory of paradoxical really of um, paradoxical theory change really grew out of his personal experience with his disability. So it states, change occurs when one becomes what he is, not when he tries to become what he's not. And change doesn't take place through a coercive attempt by an individual or by another person to change him. But it does take place when one takes the time and effort to be what he is to be fully invested in his current positions. Like you were saying about the sadness, well, maybe I could just stay with this a little longer. You were willing to be invested in that position at that time. So in other words, we don't change or fix a client, but over time, just to get the know the, to know the person as he actually is, all parts of him, not just the part that wants to change. And this facilitates him getting to know himself more clearly. And then, as you, you mentioned, he often feels more willing to change and more ready to change once he knows all of himself. Uh, in his own life, he noticed a few years into his marriage that he still really was had a strong longing and desire to be an athlete. And to be competitive. And of course, that was not a possibility for him at all. And uh, he allowed himself to feel that longing. Imagine how painful that would be. And of course, that involved grieving the loss of that longing. But what, what that brought him to was an awareness that he could consult with athletes. But that became sort of a specialty for him. He consulted with athletes as quadriplegic. Isn't that remarkable? Remarkable guy. Yeah, he he really is. So uh, let me break it down into the two parts. So change occurs when one becomes when one becomes what he is, not when he tries to become what he's not. So I think when I have a client come in, any client, I think of people as com as coming in with a tug of war internally. They're fighting with parts of themselves. They want to change. They've tried to change this, and they can't seem to change it. They're stuck in a way. And that internal tug of war is what causes their symptoms, maybe depression or anxiety, whatever they're going through, even relational difficulties. But the problem is that people are typically much more aware of their desire to change than of their desire to stay the same. 
but they're saying, fix me, change me, tell me. Uh, it kills me when people come in and say, I just need some tools. <laughs> and I just I'm like, no, oh, I don't give tools. <laughs> I give tool of awareness. That's it. That's the only tool I have to offer to people. So our job is simply to help the client gain awareness of both sides of this polarity. You know, the, the side that wants to change and the side that can't seem to change. And we don't align with either side. So if I uh, have a client come in with a desire to change and I align with that, just kind of cheerlead their desire to change, um, I create a counterforce. And their internal tug of war then becomes externalized. So guess what? Now they're fighting with me instead of fighting with themselves. So it's simpler and less complicated to just uh, heighten awareness of both sides of, of this polarity. Just help them recognize and honor the needs of both parts, the forces for change and the forces for constancy. And we believe that healing comes from attending to all fragmented parts. We never want to get rid of a part of the self. We can't do that. It's impossible. So our only other choice is to really just honor it and acknowledge it. I was just listening to a Ram Das podcast when I walked yesterday, and he talked about the question to him, from the audience was, how can we learn to love ourselves better? And he said, well, I don't think that's the question. I think we just need to learn to allow ourselves to be human beings. And to be a human being, there's a part of us that wants to change and a part of us that doesn't. Which then feels very loving to me. Yeah, it is exactly very loving. I, I just, I hear you talking about it, just fully honoring the ambivalence. Mm -hmm. which is hard to do with ourselves, right? I mean, when we're, mm -hmm. we've been such and such a way for too long and we're miserable about it and sick of it and want it to be different now, there's this part that then moves into kind of, into judgment around it, right? We, we sort of split with ourselves and all we can, th we can think if I could only make this change, then I'd be happy, but this other part of me sucks because it won't do it. And right. And we, yep. right. It's such a different experience to find a way to say, but both are true. There's a, there's a part of me that's, mm -hmm. that's stuck and it's not dumb or crazy. Mm -hmm. Can I have compassion for that part of me? Right. And there's a part of me that really is ready to shift and that's not dumb or crazy. Um, mm -hmm. A friend of mine has said for a whole lot of years, uh, to get where we're going, we have to start where we are. <laughs> Yeah, I laugh because I have down here a, a quote from John Wellwood. You're probably familiar with he wrote the Psychology of Awakening. He's a Buddhist psychologist. He said, we can't get there to healing from here unless we are fully here where we are, first of all. Right. <laughs> so right. I think it's a great quote. <laughs> there, I mean, there it is. And this seems to just take that piece that much further. It's It's as though... We have to accept where we are as an almost as a as a fully acceptable destination almost before we can depart. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Like, it has to be almost that level of embracing. No wonder I'm scared or no wonder I don't want to change this just mm -hmm. yet or no wonder I'm stuck. It makes sense that I'm stuck and something about that frees us. Yeah. I like the quote. I went back to, to Beezer's original article about this, which is incredibly just mm -hmm. short and to the point i mean it's maybe two pages long he he just nails it and right it makes sense to me when i read it that it is 
more often quoted in the Gestalt community than anything else besides the writings of, you know, Fritz Perls and his wife themselves. Um, remarkable. But there's one little piece of it that I wanted to draw out that they hold that that change does not take place by, and here's where the quote comes, does not take place by, quote, trying, Mm -hmm. by coercion or persuasion, or even by insight, interpretation, or any other such means. Rather, change can occur when the patient abandons, at least for the moment, what he would like to become and attempts to be what he is. Yeah, I read um, that change to change one must give up trying which is what paradoxical yes you know and the place where i i can make some sense of that i mean there's a part of me that just sort of blows my mind like because we've all been taught forever and ever trying is your way Mm -hmm. that's that is the way Mm -hmm. it's going to be through effort lots of effort Mm -hmm. there's there's a wonderful little book out there called the open focus brain i have it yeah this is a, a neuropsychologist who demonstrates that when we're in effort, we're in a form of, of beta activity in our brains. We're in kind of beta mind. Mm-hmm. And until we can downshift into a much more relaxed, open state of alpha, do we start to feel better. But really, the open state of alpha ends up being this place that's available for change in ways that the beta state isn't. Right? The beta state is is fixed. It's constantly on guard. It is much more rigid in many ways. Uh, It's not the only thing it is, of course, but until we can bring ourselves down into alpha, we're not really open to move. So it makes a whole lot of sense that this theory would then say, if we're working with somebody else or working with ourselves, the first thing we have to do is fully be okay with where we are for a moment. We have to get there in the moment. Yeah. We have to at least be all the way in where we are. I guess it's not that we have to approve of it. Right. We don't have to like it. Right. But we have to at least be all the way here. Yeah, just acknowledge that we don't like it. So I think I get that. And especially given what I do, I've got a little bit of a head start in getting that. But if I were hearing it for the first time, I would say, wait a minute. First of all, that doesn't make any sense. And second of all, even if it does make sense, if I give in to the parts of me that I want to change, it only makes them bigger. Let's say I want to change my laziness and I want to fully embrace my laziness first. Oh, my goodness. I embrace my laziness all day long. You got to be kidding me. That's not going to help. I've been doing that for years. I have to change it. What would you say to somebody who said, you know, who would say, no, the more I, the more I embrace it, the worse it's going to get? Well, I, I mean, I can give you an example from a, a client situation. I'm not sure I know how to address what you're saying exactly, but sure. I had this client who was a male, maybe mid 60s, had recently retired and moved to this area. And he had a long and successful career that he enjoyed and a long-term marriage. He had an adult child who he had a fairly good relationship with. But he came in, I'm a recovering alcoholic. I've been in AA for years and years and years. And so one of my subspecialties is addiction. And he came in um, wanting to address his binge drinking, which was a lifelong pattern of binge drinking. He had actually been in treatment a few times over the years. You know, it never it never took. He, he was never able to put more than a couple months together. And actually, his binge, drink, binge drinking pattern was he would always drink alone uh, when he was out of town, maybe on a business trip in a hotel room. He would drink 24-7 for two or three days, bottles of, of whiskey. Or if his family was gone and he was alone again, he would drink. So he would do that and feel bad about it for a while. And then 
put together two or three months where he wouldn't drink at all, but he would always, always go back to it. And it was, you know, as they talk about the elephant in the living room in the family where everybody in the family knew what was going on, but nobody would talk about it openly or express feelings about it. So there was a lot of tension around that. He came in knowing that he was alcoholic, admitting that, uh, had no problem admitting that. He had a family history of alcoholism where he had a sibling who actually died in her 40s, I think it was, of alcoholism. So what he came in with was he knew he wanted to figure out a way to stay sober long term and that he had a lot of shame about this secret that he had, so secret, so to speak, in his family. But he didn't have much awareness at all about his resistance to permanent sobriety. You know, he wanted to change this for so long, he was ashamed of it, but he just simply couldn't. And you can imagine, as a recovering person myself, I might be really tempted to cheer him on for sobriety, right? I know the advantages of sobriety. And um, so you can imagine I might be tempted to align with the side of him that wants to change. But he'd been in treatment three times. He knew about all of that, all that side that wants to change and how to do that and the tools that you need to go about doing that. So I found my job to be not to ally with either side of the polarity, but to just be curious about both of those. Let me say it this way. A, a mentor of mine at the Institute was watching me do a practicum as a student. So I was being the facilitator to a client, right? And she was supervising that. In her feedback, she said, with a client, you can push, you can pull, or you can meet them at the contact boundary and shape what emerges. So I didn't want to push or pull him. And I felt my own resistance about that because of my own recovery as well. Um, but just meet him where he was at. And where he was at was, here. you sound like you're in a tug of war. You want to change and you can change. I'm curious about that part of you that can't change that doesn't want to change that I think that might kind of answer your question about how you were putting it. Yeah. What happened with him? So most of the work was just uh, helping him become aware of how his drinking served him, what he loved about drinking, what he loved about going away every two or three months and, and being drunk for three days. And what he discovered was some awareness he had in their family. They avoided conflict at all costs. And, you know, we all get angry with each other. Long-term marriage, my goodness. And so there's going to be conflict, but it was never addressed. And I think his his drinking managed to give him some relief from that. So that would build up and, and he could get relief every few months from it. So um, he learned through therapy that maybe he could choose something besides drinking to deal with his conflict. And so he began to be able to speak up. He was scared about it, but he began to have dialogue with his wife about his conflict. He had a lot of grief from his family of origin, his sister dying of alcoholism and other things that happened in the family that he had never felt. None of it. He just drank over it. We, we sometimes use the term in AA, oh, you're drinking at her. You know, to describe using uh, alcohol as a way to avoid really addressing the problem and feeling the feelings. So um, he ended up more free to acknowledge and express those feelings to his son and to his wife. 
and um, then became more ready to consider, oh, maybe I don't have to choose drinking. Maybe I can choose sobriety and cope in different ways with different communication skills. He even, I think the best thing that happened is he started um, talking openly with his family about his drinking patterns. They had never, ever talked about it in 30 years. And they sat down and talked together, cried together about it. And now it was out in the open. So in AA, we kind of consider that an insurance policy against relapse. You know, you got more to lose now that people are talking about it and feel the permission to talk about, about it. So he ended up putting together, by the time he left me, I think over a year of sobriety. Wow. Wow. After that many years trying. Going to treatment three times. Which is a very big deal each and every time. But to go three times and not and not get there by then, there's clearly some really big missing stuff that he couldn't get right. to. Well, what's missing? Yeah. So one of the, it sounds like beautiful things that this theory allows is if we if we join ourselves where we are, there's often much more to uncover there. And it sounds like that's exactly what you helped him do, that if in, in not pushing him to where he was telling you he wanted to be, he was hiring you to get him there, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but in not joining mm -hmm. with that idea of you have a solution to his problem, and the only mm -hmm. problem is he won't get to where he's supposed to be. This is the the mm -hmm. you know, errored thinking erroneous thinking you were you were helping him stop and say okay you've you've tried really hard tell me about the party that doesn't want to succeed yet mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. help me understand mm -hmm. and it sounds like that really helped uncover some a huge dynamic in his family that really needed attention but also a whole lot of feelings he'd never really been able to give voice to i think a, a helpful way to put it to with clients is um uh, what what's the positive intention of of this of your drinking how does it function for you? How does it help you? Yeah. What's mm -hmm. not crazy about this, right? Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What do, what do you love about it? Right. It's really powerful for somebody also to say something like, I don't want to quit drinking. And then to stay with that, stay with that a little bit longer, Carly, mm -hmm. <laughs> that facilitator said. And just to stay with the sensations that happen, I always notice people brighten up and talk louder when they say the don't want part of the polarity. That's really powerful. I, I notice when I help people go that direction, it's like for once somebody else will hold, if there's this constant teeter-totter happening inside, this ambivalence, right? And it's, it's back and forth and back and forth. And they uh, have somebody else who will stand on the you need to change side of the teeter-totter. Then because they're not quite ready to go there yet, they can't join the person on that side. They have to move all the way to the other side. And the harder you push from the, you need to change, or here's how you're going to do it, or rah, rah, don't worry, you can make it, all of that stuff, mm -hmm. the more, the farther out on their end of the teeter-totter they have to go to, to hold the ambivalence they're not finished with yet. But if I, for once, go join them over on that side, mm -hmm. they, for the first time, have a chance to walk freely back over to the, but I really do want to change part. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. If I celebrate with them, yeah, drinking can feel really good. It must be a huge relief when you're that angry with your wife. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. It really right. is. That's what you'll get. Yeah. Right. Are you are you familiar with David Hawkins who wrote Power versus yes. Choice? Power versus Force. Yeah. He talks about force creates counterforce. That's what you're describing. Yes. 
So it polarizes rather than unifies. And our goal is integration. Yes. Not separation. So that is a huge thing for us to notice happening inside us. Like when one part of us is pushing on another, I hate my depression or Mm -hmm. what the hell's wrong with me? Why did I drink that again? I just relapse what you know and like all that shaming stuff etc this is all force and it creates a huge counter force that wants to rebel and in fact i i really believe that a person can't change what they want to change if they perceive you as the therapist uh, unaccepting of the part of them that's stuck right so if you're constantly aligning with the part of them that wants to change you can inadvertently shame the part of them that doesn't, even so rather than ever, holding it without, without intending to, right? But, without even a shaming yeah. word, right, right, or tone or anything, right? Just completely aligning with, with, cheerfully saying, "Exactly, of course you want to change. That makes so much sense. Let's get to it. Yeah, I'll show you what to do." Yeah. So the client might be sitting there thinking, "Oh, if he knew." <laughs> you know, about this other part of me that really doesn't want to do this. Yeah. Wow. How has this been showing up in your life? Like what, I mean, when you work with this yourself internally or when you've worked with it with the help of someone else, can can you tell us a little bit about what that's been like? When people ask me what my, what drew me to the Gestalt Institute of Cleveland and you know, what my experience was there. Uh, What I found myself saying is, um, it's the hardest thing I've ever done in the safest place I could have done it. This approach with paradoxical theory of change and dialogue and phenomenology and field theory, I think really loved me into being. It got me unstuck. It returned me to my own experience. Very powerful experience. But also I had a current um, example of paradoxical theory of change just happened last week that I can tell you about. Sure. I went to, I have a peer supervision group that I attend every couple weeks and we've been together for a while now. I asked them, could I spend a few minutes reciting to them what I came up with as a description of Gestalt therapy? Because as I said, it can be hard to describe in words because it's experiential. So I wanted to check it out with them and get feedback from them. And I did that and they gave me feedback, which was really helpful. And as I, as I uh, told them about it, what I noticed also was that I was pretty anxious about doing this with you because I think I forgot that I had performance anxiety and I'm an introvert and I'm shy. Why did I say <laughs> yes to this? What was I thinking? <laughs> Those were exactly my words. <laughs> so, um, I was talking about that, and they were, you know, uh, g- really giving me wonderful feedback of their experience with me in the past, and it was very helpful. And what I said to them in response was, so I, what I hear you telling me is, just be yourself. And what, when I said that out loud to them, what came to me was a memory from maybe 10 years ago, when my family and I were all home, we grew up in the Detroit area, and we were all home for some family event, wedding, funeral, you know how that is. We decided to take a ride past the house that we grew up in. And my parents had lived there until they retired and moved away, which had been about 15 years prior to this, I think. And so we went to the house, 22426 Red Maple Lane. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> and um, parked in front because we saw that the neighbors that we grew up with were in the driveway. The woman who lived there was in the driveway, and I think her husband had passed by then. But, um, we, you know, we were all excited that, you know, and nostalgic. And, and so we got out and started talking to her. And my sister stayed in the car and never got out of the car. And I was really surprised by that. It was kind of out of character for her. And later that night, she and I were sharing a hotel room. And I asked her, I was sad. I was surprised that you didn't get out of the car. And she said, yeah, all I could think of when I looked at that house was, don't be. Mm. Now, here are people telling me to be myself. That's against the rules. Yeah. So as one of my lovely peer group members said, so it's a really heavy lift for you. You have to work through a lot to be. Yeah. So as I was able to admit sort of the the fear, the anxiety, the, the no in me, why did I say yes to this? That was the no in me. I needed to do that, I think, before I could move to the yes. Yeah. And I needed their sort of compassionate response to me to do that yeah. especially as colleagues it's really neat how that arose from it's it started with it actually started in many ways with encouragement i mean talking about you're doing a great job and here's what we know about you and you can just be yourself but that wasn't enough what really did it was you realizing wow i spent my entire childhood but hearing the opposite. Yeah, that awareness that came up so strong for me of don't be yourself. And then it sounds like somebody joining you and just saying, so it's a really heavy lift, validating that experience, that it's it makes so much sense that this would be scary. And that I could come and do that with that part of me. I didn't have to change it first. I didn't have to get rid of it because I'm 70 years old. I'm not getting rid of it anytime soon. Right. No need to banish the there. fear. It can come along. Or as Ram Dass said, I could just do this allowing myself to be human. Right. <laughs> Often the part of me that feels more stuck when I am introspective about it, if I can slow down and be with it enough, which, you know, I guess without knowing it involves relying on some of those principles you talked about at the beginning. The stuck part of me feels young. Oh, yeah. Right? It usually is, yeah. And on my very best days, it reminds me of sort of what it's like to interact with my son, right? I mean, all the way along. He's 13 now, but of course, he's been all the other ages first. And I can't believe he's 13. <laughs> I know, it's unbelievable. Yeah. Um, how did that happen? Such a soulful and wonderful kid. And I mean, naturally, he's his agenda does not always line up with the grown-up agenda. Sometimes we want him to do something that's scary or annoying or something he doesn't want. And if I try to override that with force, which on my lesser parenting days, I do. Maybe I'm just too impatient and I just want to sort of like just we all are. right. Yeah. <laughs> It doesn't go well, uh, to put mm -hmm. it quickly. It just doesn't go as well as when I can slow down with him and just be like, um, especially for a more serious moment, maybe it's swimming lessons way back when. Just, I get why this is scary. Acknowledging that. Yeah. 
just be with him yeah. in his fear for a minute and say, we're, we're yeah. going to do it anyway. And you don't have to not be scared. Yeah. Well, David Rico talks about that, those five A's and yeah. what is it? Acknowledgement, allowing, you know, a lot of what Ram Das was mentioning. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Acceptance, appreciation, and, uh, yep, affection, all of it. it. Meeting ourselves in this way, paradoxically, mm-hmm isn't just encouraging it's quite the opposite it's it's really it's it's uh it's so validating of the part of us that needs to be heard before we can move on Mm -hmm. exactly yeah that that's where my peer group was so helpful to me beautiful anything more you want to say about this this beautiful theory before we go on to the experiential exercise i love it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> me too me too i'm very excited about gestalt therapy and the institute in cleveland and it really saved my life i think uh, i feel fortunate to have found it uh, so fortunate there's so everything you're describing about gestalt it's reminding me of course of things i, I learned in school um but it's mostly affirming all of my favorite parts of the best work i've experienced as a client and the best work i've done as a therapist yeah. sound just like this it's yeah and it's so gentle it's so subtle yeah and it's the way i really want to be with myself mm-hmm. and it's the way i really hope by the end of the work we do with this podcast i i think a whole lot of these principles will be what I'm encouraging listeners to move toward in themselves too. Mm-hmm. Great. I'm so glad to hear that. Maybe a good way to end with, you're familiar with Parker Palmer, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's so wonderful. I found that this quote by him, let me state that before we end. He says, true self when violated will always resist us. Sometimes at great cost, holding our lives in check until we honor its truth. Wow. Can you read that again? That is just mm-hmm. exquisite. True self, when violated, will always resist us, sometimes at great cost, holding our lives in check until we honor its truth. Huh. Lovely. Isn't that nice? Very much so. Well, I really appreciate your time today. I'm looking forward to hearing the experiential exercise. Thank you so much, Carlene. Thanks, Doug. Hey, it's Pete again, checking in. It's pretty great, right? Now we're going to turn the tables with our exercise and this is one where Carlene uh, led off by saying hey I need a buddy I need somebody to do this with this can't be one of those uh, one-sided meditations gestalt has certain requirements and one of those that allows it to truly shine is when we work in partnership with someone else and so Dodge said oh well I can't do it I've just spent the last hour talking to you about this stuff And you remember those old Life commercials, Life cereal? You know, give it to Mikey. He'll eat anything. Yeah, that's what happened. Everybody just sort of looks at me and says, okay, Pete, get ready. Well, I am not one to shy away from being vulnerable on a microphone. So here we go. Carlene is taking us through an exercise that you can do yourself with someone else practicing gestalt language and self-talk. It's great. But before Carlene gets back and we take on this exercise, I have to ask, do you want to be a part of a little change yourself? 
That is fantastic because you can do just that at truestory.fm slash the change paradox. We love podcasts, but the hour you just listened to with Carlene took many, many more hours of our Motley team here to organize, record, edit, and deliver it to you. By becoming a member, you become a key part of the engine that is listener-supported podcasting. For $5 a month, you can support the time we put into creating and producing the show. And just for members, I sit down with Dodge for a conversation about the interview we had each week that you can only access through your personal podcast feed once you sign up. We call these episodes Afterthoughts, a chance for Dodge and me to have this conversation about their conversation. We share lessons learned, tools for integration, talk about how our lives are changing as a result of that conversation, and of course we laugh along the way. There are options for joining monthly and annually, and uh, so you don't have to think about it. Again, truestory.fm slash thechangeparadox. Thanks to all of you for joining us on this journey. And now, here's Carlene leading me through a gestalt partner exercise that you can do at home when you're looking to break a cycle yourself. What I've been told Dodge likes to do with a podcast at the end is um, give you a little exercise that you can go home and practice around this. As I said earlier, you got to go to know. So this is a chance to sort of know by experiencing it, the the paradoxical theory of change. And um, so you'll need a partner for this exercise. Um, And, you know, if you have a spouse or a partner or a a friend who can do this with you, figure it'll take maybe about 20 minutes altogether. And um, get in your pair. And there'll be two parts to the exercise. Each part, you want to take maybe five or ten minutes with each part. In pairs, person A will talk about something they want to change, something they want to achieve, some way they're stuck in some way, as if they're going to a therapy appointment. And person B is going to be the facilitator. And their job in the first five to ten minute round is to simply cheer you on, you know, to find various ways to encourage this person A to tell them they can do it, blah, blah, blah. Um, A friend of mine at the Institute, when I asked for support for doing this today, said to me, you'll be swell, you'll be great, going to have the whole world on a plate. So that's what what I want your attitude to be in the first five or 10 minute round that you take. And then you're going to switch and uh, person A will stay the client, person B will stay the facilitator. And what I want this time the facilitator to do is just to stay with what is, just to ask questions about what's going on for this person, to be curious, to show empathy for how this particular change or goal is difficult maybe for the client, Uh, maybe expressing understanding of how the client might be protecting themselves with it, or what's the positive intention of this behavior that you can't, that you want to change and can't seem to change. You you might say things like, um, so I'm curious, what's this been like for you to be stuck in this way? What what do you notice that you would have to give up about if you made this change? How, How has this behavior served you or what scares you about making the change? And notice your experience as you talk about it 
Notice your own experience as the facilitator and report that too. And typically what, what will happen is that people will feel more seen and heard and understood in the second round than in the first. So I'm going to do a little demonstration for you, and Pete has um, valiantly agreed to, to help out here. And he's going to be the client, and I'll be the facilitator. And we'll just take a couple of minutes in each round to give you an idea of how this is done. So, welcome, Pete. Thanks for joining me in this exercise. Is there something that you want to talk about? Well, I'm struggling with my health, and uh, I dealt with my own uh, round of, of COVID for the month of July and early August, and it spent a lot of time uh, in bed and ill and hurting. And I am, you know, it's been now several months, and, and I've just been told... Uh, it's time to time to start moving your body again. So I've now been told that um, I'm I'm approved to start, you know, exercising again and rehabilitating and building some strength uh, because I've lost a lot and and it's I, I'm finding it really difficult to to find that place where I I. Uh, you know, I want to go out and and get some exercise where I want to to get stronger. I'm finding it's it's really a challenge to get my head in in that space where I need to do what I'm told. Yeah, I hear that, and you know, I know that you're really determined, and I know that you've been into fitness in the past, and I, I'm sure you can do this. I, you know, in fact, I had to get back to fitness and. And here's what I did. I just took a walk every morning at 7 for 45 minutes and did some weights at home, even though we can't go to the gym these days. And there's so much you can do. You could, you know, get a bike out. You have good weather in Portland. I, I'm sure you can do it. I, I guess. I, I guess I do. Um, I, you know, it's starting to rain. That never helps. And it's so dark in the morning and that never helps and these are not like i mean they sound like i'm just sort of making up excuses but it re they really are the first things i think about in the morning but here's what you can do you can just exercise in the afternoon or if you have any exercise equipment at home I, you can do it i'm i'm sure you can get back in shape okay so maybe we can i don't know what to do with that <laughs> yeah <laughs> i told you you wouldn't like me this first time. so Let's end this round. So that's what I want the facilitator to do in the first round. Simply just cheer the person on. Yeah. Convince them that, that what they want to change is a good thing and that they can do it. Okay. okay. All right. So let's start the second round where the facilitator is going to be curious about the whole of your experience. What you want to change and maybe what you don't want to change. So let's start again. So, hi, Pete. Hi. Tell me what you want to talk about today. Well, I've been I've been struggling with uh, rehabilitation after a COVID experience, and I'm I'm having trouble um, getting my head back in the space where I'm I can start building some strength and getting my my general level of fitness up. Mm. I'm so sorry to hear that you were hit by COVID. That must have been terrible. It was, it was, uh, it was, 
very not great. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was a long time. Mm -hmm. And you lost a lot of muscle strength. And I did, fitness. I did. And just, there's a, I, I think now it's, you know, it's been uh, four months and I, I still mm -hmm. have this general feeling of frailty about me. I just mm -hmm. feel like uh, made of glass. Oh, gosh. Hmm. How is that for you? Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's pretty scary, actually. It's, it's downright terrifying. Um, mm -hmm. I'm, I am wildly engrossed in hypochondria, right? I just, every, you name something that hurts and I immediately think it's, you know, it, it's, you know, the worst. It's COVID again. It's like arthritis. It's what, whatever mm -hmm. it is. It's, it's, uh, uh, unstoppable cascade of ailments. I imagine we know so so little about this illness and the long-term consequences that it must be really scary to live with that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, and I think I think that's really the that's interesting. That's really kind of where those where that experience for me, that sort of lived experience is that uh, I'm at the crossroads of like feeling terrified about getting sick again and mm -hmm. feeling like whenever I push myself to any extent, I feel things in my body that I feel like I shouldn't be able to feel. And mm -hmm. that's, that just sort of exacerbates. It creates, that's, that's what I, I think creates kind of those negative thought spirals. And yeah, it adds things. to the terror. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I can also understand the hypochondria piece because I mean, you kind of laugh about that, but I've not had, COVID yet, knock on wood. And um, I still notice myself more scared about every ache and pain that I have, worrying that I might have gotten COVID. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I think I think that's the, every symptom is such a surprise. Like you just have no idea how these things, X, Y, and Z could possibly be related to all of this. Mm. And yet, you know, that's what they keep saying. And so that's why any mystery ache and pain could just be related to long hauling it through whatever the end might be. Yeah. And you don't know if there is an end. Yeah. Right. That's, that's terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. So is this an okay place to end? Sure. Okay. Yeah. Thanks, Pete, for doing this with me. Oh, I appreciate that, Carlene.